0: Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Terry Slattery and Rob Widmer about the history of the router CLI. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld with the finest minds in networking. So, Terry and Rob, welcome to the history of networking. I do it like they do at Disney World. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the history of networking. So, Terry, let's start with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Already starting with a bad joke, sorry. <laughs> uh,
1: I guess the uh, claim to fame is being one of the early CCIEs. Um, worked on the Cisco CLI, done a lot of consulting work for Cisco, um, ran a consulting and training company uh Chesapeake computer consultants, uh, we trained something on the order of thirty thousand network engineers on how to use Cisco's one box at a time. Gosh, isn't that a legacy? <laughs> um so anyway, uh went on and developed NetMRI, a network management product, and uh I'm now doing consulting at NetCraftsman. Okay, cool. So what about you, Rob?
2: Name's name is Rob Widmer. I used to work with Terry back at CCCI back in 1990 for a few years where we started working on uh, Cisco software. And then I worked at Cisco, followed by Redback Networks. And right now I work at Infoblox.
0: Oh, cool. I actually worked at Redback for a little bit, but it wasn't called Redback at the time. What was it called? It was called Ericsson.
2: Oh, that was uh, after, yeah. Yeah,
0: but I worked on the Redback team at Ericsson. So, you know, just have to like throw that in there, which is now gone, gone, totally gone, Wow. like totally gone, unfortunately. It's so can we
1: thank you for that?
0: No, no. <laughs> but I knew, I knew things were in trouble when I my manager left the company and they made me report to my director and then my director left the company and I ended up reporting to the junior VP. And then he left the company and I ended up reporting directly to the senior VP and I thought, Maybe I should be looking you, for another day.
1: You, 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 it took you that long to figure this out, huh? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it's either me driving away everybody, or, well, maybe it's just me driving away everybody. I don't know.
1: <laughs> right.
0: It could be. So let's talk about the CLI. We're talking about the Cisco CLI specifically, although I might inject, or Donald might inject other CLI goodies in here as we go through, or interface goodies as we go through, because, Some of this history is quite humorous, and if you think it's bad now, um, you know, you should have seen it back then, right, Terry?
1: That's right. (laughs) So is that your lead-in question?
0: That's my lead-in question. (laughs) I can't
1: start. Say again?
0: Where did this all start? Yeah, where did all this start?
1: Well, it started back in our 1990 timeframe. I had actually met Greg Satz at a trade show, and silly me, he tried to hire me, and I said No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So anyway, uh, he said, I have this task for you. And he he gave me a couple of tasks to do and went and accomplished them. And he said, okay. Um, And he had known of of some other work that I had done that kind of gave him confidence that I could tackle a fairly large project. And he said, all right, so what I want you to do is to go and develop a new user interface for the Cisco router line. At that time, they didn't even own switches. Okay, so the only thing they had were routers. And I want you to go develop a new command line, and I want you to do it in a way that allows us to extract the parsing engine from the router and put it into a network management platform. Now, um, this, this was kind of an interesting challenge because the original CLI that Cisco had in the routers uh, was kind of a, a trade show hack by Kirk Lougheed Now, Kirk was one of the founders of Cisco, and he originally intended, I actually asked him about it one day, and he said he originally intended for the Cisco routers to never have a command line interface. They would be configured by TFTP, and it would copy its config again and parse it. But he got to a trade show, and he found out he needed to modify the configuration of the router they had on the show floor and didn't have a TFTP server. So what he did, it was, and I'm not sure exactly how this transpired. Anyway, he hacked the code to allow you to type commands into a buffer. And when you type control Z, it went and parsed the buffer. And this buffer was the same buffer that TFTP would copy into. So, oh, so the that, that so, so, so the original CLI was just type commands into a buffer and type control Z and keep your fingers crossed that it would work.
0: Yeah, this this actually explains a lot because... Back in the old days, before the CLI was redone, it was all global variables. Yes, and that's that internally. It was all just a bunch of global variables, and you know every every module or protocol or whatever would put its own global variables into the global variable table. And when you did a show show what a show run or whatever, it just like walked the entire global variable table, looking for these things and spitting them out. That's correct. So that's like, that, that probably explains a little bit of that.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, so anyway, a, a few years, well, a, about the time, I guess it was early 1990, um, I was talking with Greg about it, and um, we'd started work on this project and trying to figure out, okay, what's the, the approach here? What's the, the plan of attack? And Greg admitted to me that they had changed the parsing engine uh, sometime in the previous year, I didn't get the exact date. Um, and what it did is it parsed each line. And so instead of taking the entire buffer, it would do a line at a time. I said, you know, I thought I recognized that there was a change here. And it wasn't significant enough to really cause me to to stop. But I remember there being, oh, this is working a little bit differently than it used to. Um, but there was no command line um, Command completion, interactive help, uh, you know, question mark, none of the command line editing, none of that stuff existed. You just had to remember the commands, type them in, and pray that you got them right and carry the manuals with you, because you had to refer to them to get the syntax right.
0: Okay, that that's like, yeah, okay. That
1: kind so of that was all prior to the 9.21 release.
0: Okay. And so that's what was there. That's not the current, that's not the way the CLI developed. That's just where, that's what it.
1: That's what we started with. That's
0: what you started with. Okay. Exactly. Um, now I'll, I'll, I'll just inject this because around about this same time I was working on some Bay routers and that was even probably worse because in the Bay router um, you basically had to type in or you had to walk through the SNMP table to configure things so basically the configuration was i'm just going to go to the right snmp mode or node in the entire tree snmp tree and i'm actually going to do a put like you would remotely but it was done on the cli which was quite entertaining
1: yeah the the interesting thing there was that their gui which they had used snmp to set things yes. And so the CLI was actually this crude interface that allowed you to type the same things in directly at the, right. the parsing engine or the SNMP engine. Yeah.
0: So the GUI was basically just an SNMP manager running on box. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you're going to complain about the CLI, remember, it could be worse.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
0: So tell us, so you started on this project, so tell us a little bit of how that project went and um, what what was going on at the time and, and, you know, stuff.
1: Well, it's basically four of us. So uh, Rob did a lot of the heavy lifting. Um, We spent, what, Rob, 18 months, I think it was?
2: It was a long time. I don't remember how long exactly. I don't think it was 18 months. It it couldn't have been 18 months.
1: Uh, Okay. My my (laughs) memory was something like 18 months, and, and it was... We basically started at the front of the eight dot, is it mm-hmm. eight dot two manual? I think I have I have the manuals here. As a matter of fact, the ones that I wrote in.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, um, I, I remember. Yes, we had the manuals. We would each had a, one of the manuals, and we would just start implementing. You know, we each divided up different sections, and we had the manuals and the code to go with.
1: Yeah, so it's basically, and, and we were working remotely for the most part. So we were sitting here in Maryland, and um, we had. Connections of VPN basically across the internet to Cisco and could get in there, and got access to the code in in their development systems and basically remote editing, and uh, to start taking a look at the code. Okay, where's the first command? Where is where is uh, host name? <laughs> you can start with something simple like host name and things like that, and work our way through all the commands.
0: Now this was not C though, right? Or was this C? This probably. No, this is in C. It yes. Was in C.
1: Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Regular old C code. And and by the way, the the iOS it was not called iOS at the time. Um, so the the router operating system is a run to completion scheduler. So what that means is, once the task starts, it runs until it gives up the CPU voluntarily. There is no time sharing system that, that stops a process and starts another process to give it a slice of CPU.
3: But wait, there's more. It was flat memory model too. Oh it was it was, it was everything
1: is yep. with one memory address space. That's right. That's right. So you could stomp on another process's memory space if you wanted to. <laughs> that did it happened all the time. Yeah oh, so yeah. To,
3: to be realistic, that, that model still existed when I left Cisco four years ago. Yeah. Oh it's They're still yeah. there. It's still run. People still use it. it's a yep. flat memory model run to completion, shared shared process space for everything.
0: And, and to be fair, there's a reason it was that way, which was we were working with really, really underpowered processors that didn't have all the memory separation stuff that modern processors do at all. No, th-
1: yeah, there was, there was no memory manager in the hardware.
0: Yeah, and to make matters worse, everything was, was switched in software. Like, there was no ASIC. So, right. I mean, the switching path had to be... the the switching path had to run in a single interrupt so that it could be soft real time, which by the way, the initial code didn't even do that. It was just simply switching what we would consider today software based switching. And then later on to speed things up, it was placed, all the switching code was placed in a single interrupt context. Hence interrupt based switching was a major, major improvement because it was soft real time. And yeah. So, I mean, we talk about this, but run to completion is the most efficient way to run when you're in that environment.
1: Um, right. It's, but it does create some interesting bugs.
0: Oh, it's very problematic, right? <laughs> are thrashing, you know. When, when
1: OSPF way. was implemented, for example, uh, <laughs> the SPF algorithm would run <laughs> and routing, of packet forwarding would stop until OSPF
0: finished. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, interrupt-based switching. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: So, yeah. So, anyway, um, Starting in in nineteen ninety, I guess it was fairly late in nineteen ninety, near middle of the year, uh, we actually started working on the CLI, and it was it was four of us: it was Rob, myself, uh, Brent Baklaw, and Pete Welcher. And Pete's working here at Net Craftsman; um, he's a principal architect here as well. And um, it was just. Slogging through the manuals page by page, pick a command, go take a look at the code, see what it does, implement it in the new parsing algorithm. Um, I won't go into the details of that. <laughs> um, but it, it's kind of a bizarre piece of code, but it, it works well. And to my knowledge, it's still in, in existence. Mm-hmm.
3: So uh, I have I have to actually ask this. My my recollection of the the CLI was that when you program it, you had to do it in reverse order.
1: Yes, when you programmed it, yes. So that yeah. was
3: that started with you guys.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. and actually, okay. Brent Bachla came up with that idea, and it used the C preprocessor to make that happen, and that's why it had to be in reverse order.
0: Right, because everything's a pound defined. Like all the commands are pound defined, so it all runs right. in the C prepro- preprocessor. Yeah, so there's
1: no look ahead. <laughs> right. Now all of that, all of that
0: has been redone. There was a project internally called Hot Ice that was supposed to replace all of this with.
1: Oh, um, uh, there have been multiple projects to replace a yeah. whole bunch of stuff. And yeah. Most of them. my head and it, that no one can see
3: me. Did, it was. It was still there when I left. <laughs> the reverse order. It was. It. It was truly interesting way to think. I. It always made my brain hurt when I had to program it. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's
3: actually interesting to know the, the 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 origin. So it was it was the goal there, I guess, was because it was a C preprocessor, you had to do it in reverse order. And um so typically, you know, it's a regex engine, right? So why not just use regexes? What
2: was the goal there?
1: Oh, I don't remember that kind of details from it. Rob, do you remember?
2: It's probably more a combination of performance and code size the basically we were ba- handcrafting the state transitions of the language with, you know, C structures and we made them very, very compact. There was um, different Raman and in- Raman images that needed to be like under one meg or one that had to be under 512 kilobytes. And so there wasn't a whole lot of room to add a whole lot of big regex uh, parsing in there. Plus the language wasn't normal anyway. It's, the way it was just grew haphazardly, it was just a mess to try to do something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, That's a key factor there. Um, We took a look at, at uh, some regular parsing engines and none of the parsing engines could handle this because it's not a regular language Um, like, like regular expressions that has a certain connotation. Um, But the language is not regular. It's very non-deterministic. It's, um, highly dependent on other arguments so in some contexts you might have value you might have a name followed by a value in other contexts it's position dependent so yeah that, 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 all I, that made it so a regular parsing engine couldn't handle this we looked at, at lex and yak and stuff like that it's like nope those don't work
0: yeah in fact, in fact i think now, it's interesting that that is that way because I think that's probably my biggest annoyance with the Cisco CLI and CLI in general is that there is no verb, object, subject. There's no grammar. It's random. Right. And and sometimes it's, you know, um, to turn on Ceph, it's Ceph IP or it's IP Ceph, I think it is. And in other cases, when you're turning on fast switching, it's like interrupt switching IP or whatever. Everything's reversed for everything. And it's quite maddening to figure out exactly what is going on in any particular moment in time. So that that's, makes sense that it grew kind of randomly.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it's basically whatever the programmer thought up at the time that, that they were writing a particular command and the syntax that they created at the time. And Cisco was growing so quickly at that point in, in terms of, of growing the code and adding features to it, like x25 was done over the course of a week by Greg Sachs. So Greg, <laughs> salesman came in and said, I have, have this deal. That if you can do X-25, then I can close this deal. And a week later, he had X-25 going so they could close the deal.
0: That explains um, a lot, too.
1: <laughs> so, so you have that sort of stuff going on. And so it's just this collection of stuff uh, by different people. And there's no parser police. There's no regulation on how the commands are structured. And then when we got involved, Greg said 100%. Backwards compatibility. You cannot change any commands, like rats. <laughs> 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 so that made the job difficult, right there.
3: So yeah, you, just, that, you just mentioned something that a lot of people might not know about Parser Police. Can you go into go into that about yeah, what, when did that, what that start?
0: Because I was on Parser Police for a long time. I was on Parser Police when it lost its teeth. So I'm I'm you know I don't know when it started though.
1: Well, that that started, I think, after the parser was – after we finished our work with the parser or right about yeah, the was, end of
2: it. Yeah, it was done after the fact. Um, I'll find the exact date. You can go ahead and talk. I'll figure it out.
1: <laughs> I figured Rob would have a lot of history here that I didn't. That, that's cool.
2: <laughs> I still have my uh, Cisco email box here, so that's why I'm just <laughs> looking at it. <laughs>
1: Oh, my god! <laughs> I, I thought I kept so, a lot of shit
2: so, so march ninety four
3: march ninety four what was the goal of parser policing
2: to try to enforce to try to make the language more consistent going forward? People were just throwing in garbage, and it just it needed to be more consistent going forward, so we put that in there
1: now remember Rob was working for Cisco at that point in time yeah right. not yet, not yet. Not yet.
2: That was March 94. I joined Cisco in April of 95. Okay. All right. Or four or something. Or somewhere around okay. there.
0: So right. I started Cisco in like November of 96 and parser police was still pretty, had pretty good teeth. And then I think it must have been around 11 something, 11 to 11, three, that people started throwing stuff in the code and parser police just couldn't do anything about it. And manager started backing, started backing down parser, parser police and it lost its teeth. Mm-hmm. So parser police really only lasted for like late nine to mid 11 um, code bases, From what I remember, uh, I could be a little bit wrong, but I think it was around 11 2 when things started going south on parser police.
2: Mm-hmm. It was supposed to be part of the process. It was a requirement that to be approved by parser police.
1: Yeah. 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 And of course, that slowed things down. And when that happened, it got stopped.
2: Exactly. <laughs> right. Got in the way.
0: It got yep. in the way and then managers started coming on Parser Police and saying, No, 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 my feature's going in. It's gonna make it into eleven three or it's gonna make it into eleven two or whatever it right. is. Right. And uh that was the end. You know, you just couldn't you couldn't say no. There were so many requests going in, um, that Parser Police just couldn't keep up. There weren't enough people watching it and it slowed the process down, and that was the end of Parser Police. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah. So now, one thing I'm I'm very curious about is the enable mode and the other pieces of that, how did that all come about? I mean, why enable mode? Why, why sub-modes? Things like that. I mean, it, that's
1: not necessary. The regular the enable mode already existed. Yeah.
0: Okay. So you had to be backwards compatible with that.
1: Right. Uh-huh. Now, what we did, um, and Rob's the, the one to, to credit with all of this, is all the interactive help and command completion and stuff like that. because we're we're driving this user interface all the time and we were emacs and and bash shell kind of people and um we were really so, accustomed to, to being able to to hit up arrow and <laughs> control p and and stuff like that and edit command lines and it's like this cisco cli really needs something where we can start editing things so rob do you want to talk some more about that
2: yeah i was doing some testing and i went and i hit typed something wrong i was like darn it so i hit Control p didn't do anything and that so uh, that afternoon i wrote up all the history and command line editing and stuff and then there was just like one little piece about optimizing how it displayed because you were trying to fit everything into uh 80 characters on the terminal so was doing the shifting and stuff like that so overnight i figured out the optimum way to do all that and did that the next day and then i had my command line editing
1: wow excellent overnight. see this for reminds- it in it Okay, so the interesting tidbit here is the, the shifting back and forth. And that's, that's the really key thing here because, yeah, there were, there were terminals. There were like VT100 was the common terminal that you could have. But there were other ones, there were ADM3As and all sorts of other stuff that had different command sequences for repainting the page and, and moving the cursor around the page. The problem was we had no way to tell what kind of terminal might be attached to one of these Cisco routers. So how do we handle command line editing when the command is longer than 80 characters? And by the way, X25 in particular could be a really long command.
0: Oh, yes, yeah, of course.
1: So, um, so how do we handle that? And so Rob and I, <laughs> we spent probably an hour or so batting around ideas and finally said, yeah, let's, let's just do the shift back and forth. And, and by the way, the characters, the, the caret sign is, is the reg x for beginning of line and the dollar sign is the reg x for end of line. So those were the markers we dropped in, or that Rob dropped in, because <laughs> <laughs> Rob was doing the work.
0: Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a problem at that time, is that you didn't know what kind of terminal you'd be talking to the router on. Um, right. You know, it was very difficult to figure out some of that stuff. And, you know, we actually compiled an image for the CCIE lab that uh, if you had question mark, it didn't give any answers
1: <laughs> oh you can use the alias command and why and would do, you do all that? sorts of interesting things with that
3: why, why would you do that to someone <laughs> i mean seriously i mean that it's like that's the whole point It's like i may not remember the exact command but i know that helps there
2: that's
0: just it's just it was
3: it's, it's just cruel. rude russ <laughs>
2: rude. <laughs> rude.
0: it was cruelty to another tech engineer what can i say yeah you know at least I, at least i didn't throw chairs across the, the cubicle walls which did happen or cut my cubicle into pieces and reorganize it over the weekend while nobody was in the office which actually did happen as well
3: i think we all done that haven't we
0: (laughs) with with a a circular saw (laughs) that was a little bit crazy
1: yeah, so one of the other interesting tidbits was that um, one of my trips out to California, Greg Satz and I, Greg was paying for this project, and he he had a his own budget. He was a director at the time, and he had his own budget. Um, and so he was able to sign off on all the work we were doing. Um, and so one of the interesting things he told me was 100% backwards compatibility, and I want to make sure that, um, let's see, what was it? backwards compatibility, um, which meant that command line editing could not be turned on by default because that was 100% backwards compatible. And I went, well, Greg, that doesn't make sense because people don't know it's there (laughs) if they don't know the commands to use it. So it's transparent to them anyway. And what was pretty interesting was Greg got busy with something else. He had another project he got busy on. And we just left it turned on. <laughs>
3: that, that was the right decision. That was the right decision. That was the right
1: decision. It was. And so it, it got released with it enabled by default. And shortly after that, a lot of people started going, this is really cool. <laughs> and at you that know, point, it was game over.
0: <laughs> back in those days, a lot of stuff got done that way. I remember filing defects that a command wouldn't work. And what had happened was the developer would put the command in that he wanted to put a feature in, but he couldn't get it past the PM. The PM would say, We don't have any market demand for this. So you can't spend your time on it. So the developer would build the command in and hide it. And hide it. And then I would file a bug that the command didn't work. And then they would have to develop the feature to backfill to make the <laughs> command work.
1: <laughs> you know? yeah by the way, um when we were doing the the c l i work, we did find some commands that were hidden, okay, so these were commands that you had to know they existed they weren't documented and um so so this came up and so sure enough, we put in a little hack that, that said that commands could be hidden so there's there was a something in the c preprocessor um directives that we put in to allow hidden commands. And
0: boy, did that cause a huge controversy later on. A lot, oh, yeah. a lot of providers came back. Like it was like five years later or something, or ten years later or whatever, and came back and said, "No, we didn't know what every command is in this box, every command, <laughs> not just the, including the hidden ones." And that was a huge political boondoggle. That was a huge mess.
1: Well, for, I wasn't there at the time, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> for a couple of years, that caused some major heartache. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right, T. Go ahead, Donald.
3: So what was next? Uh, you've got the CLI in. You've made it backwards compatible. You can edit it. what did you do next?
1: Uh, released it. <laughs> <Stop>. <laughs> What's uh, your history on, on it?
2: Well, first we committed it, and then one of the like within an hour or so, one of the uh, automated testing people they had started doing automated testing with uh, Tickle and stuff and Expect, and they came up and said you changed the prompt on one of these commands. It was the, uh, which one was it? I think it was the enter. We didn't have the enter control Z to exit config mode. We didn't have that in there and they were expecting it and it broke their uh, all their testing.
0: So one one hour later you had your first defect.
2: Yes. (laughs) Uh, One of many.
1: (laughs) Oh, another interesting thing. All right. So, so we had the, the, that defect. Um, when we committed everything, it turned out that the resulting image—do you, know, you remember the the exact specs, Rob? The image was smaller, and that included all the interactive help. It was like a hundred k bytes smaller, something like that. I
2: I don't have that information.
1: It was—I remember it being smaller, but I don't remember by how much. And back in those days, a hundred kilobytes was was a big number. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So. That made a, a big difference right there. We improved the functionality significantly and reduced code size. How often does that happen?
0: <laughs> like, well, never,
1: like never for most projects.
0: So you hit, heard it first on History of Networking, a historic, an actual historic moment. <laughs> first in, in, in the world of C coding. So, so was there any thought put into extensibility for this thing? over the long term or was it just like get it running get it up and running and and just get it going and,
2: and that at the it? time no there was some work later on done to modularize all of ios because at the time in order to build different images there was we'd have to build a stub library for something so you can either link in the real library or the stub library depending on what features you wanted to have in the image uh
0: messy make w- files man that was a disaster
2: Oh, yeah. Well, I had done a bunch of pre-work on that, too. Um, But, yeah, Kirk Lockheed came up with the project to do all the modularity work, and then I worked on all the parser parser and other things. Uh, I took on a lot of other stuff to convert all the code to be modular and stuff, so that way everything could be linked in at compile time. Uh, You didn't have to have the stub libraries. And when the image came up, it would go out and find all the different modules and pull them in and, and link them up at runtime. And there's some interesting things where there were some inner protocol operations that weren't coded up to work before that because of the way the modularity was done automatically just started working once all that was done.
0: Interesting. So tell us about defaults, because I know that if something is set to the default, it doesn't print when you do a show run um, or a write T. So how, does, how, does, how did that come about, that whole process come about? Was that there before you started working on it? or
1: Yeah, <laughs> that was there before.
0: Oh, was it really? Interesting. I wouldn't have thought that would have been there because that's a pretty advanced concept, actually, having only the part of the config show that you need, um,
1: which is basically just done by comparing. To- I
3: guess it makes sense to me because if you're short on space, you have to have a smaller file to write.
1: Yeah, yeah it was it was saving space in n v yep yeah and that was a, a another pricey component memory w- at that time was a pricey component. it was one of the biggest expenses in the Cisco router
0: right, and so most of the time if you got a bigger config, you ended up having to boot off of t f t p or something like that, so you'd have like a step mm-hmm. config that told you how to get to the t f t p server
1: and- oh uh there's oh. another interesting thing um sorry i'm I'm stepping on you there, That's right. <laughs> Um, And that was that um, our development included running this stuff on Unix machines. So remember this uh, iOS on Unix, IOU and all this stuff that's, you know, like eight or 10 years old and all this stuff about, oh, we're going to run iOS on a Unix platform. Well, we were doing that back in the early nineties. Well,
0: now, to be fair, that was done. You were doing that before, I think, there was internet-based switching, right? And before the interfaces had their own, um, before they had their own, like, the, the IDVs and stuff were not split out and... uh yeah the the, that IDB, is correct, yeah, the the VIDB, whatever they were called. Right. I'm thinking of what they're not virtual IDBs, but something else. There's the software. hardware
2: IDBs and the software IDBs. Yeah,
0: the software IDBs and the hardware IDBs. Those were not split off at that time, right? So that would no. be correct. That would be where you ran into problems pushing it back onto Linux was when you mm-hmm. started doing IDBs. Linux doesn't have that kind of, or Unix doesn't have that kind of construction. Let's,
3: let's take a second and explain what an IDB is to our...
0: Well, go ahead, Donald. You do this all the time. I don't time. remember. interface descriptor block is an IDB. So it's a data structure that describes, like when you put in the name of the interface and the IP address and everything, all of that stored in the IDB data structure, as well as things like pointers to the switch code. So that if you switch a packet through the interface, you know what function to call or what memory address to call to actually switch a packet. So all of that was stored in the IDB. Um, And like Rob said, there were hardware IDBs and software IDBs. And so, a virtual interface is really just a software IDB that point, that that's pointer goes to another software IDB, and then the software IDB, the ultimate one that's going to do the switching, pushes directly to the hardware IDB to um, figure out how to physically do the packet switch. What's the TX ring and all the other bits and pieces you need to get that going? Is that pretty close, Rob? Or did I tell yeah. you that?
2: No, that's perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Been a long time since I've worked on that particular. Those particular pieces of code, like, a long time.
1: Okay, so I, I guess my last little interesting tidbit was uh, in the realm of no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, I got to spend some time in a San Jose courtroom um, testifying on the Arista case. <laughs> uh, all this Not work one of you- my favorite times. <laughs>
0: yeah, all this work and... It all comes down to showing up in a courtroom to testify on the arrest of case. Yeah. Um, so Rob, were you called into that as well?
2: Or? I met with some lawyers. So I did not get called in to do anything else after that. You're yeah,
0: welcome. they decided you weren't <laughs>
2: <good>. Thank you.
0: <laughs> they decided Rob wasn't
1: good. But I did get to meet some of the, the folks that um, uh, Kirk was there and um, some of the other guys, uh, Phil Remacher, so I got to chat with them a little bit.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So now I'm thinking about it. I wonder how much of that FTP code or TFTP code to draw the, the to draw the configuration in that was there before you started on this was originally in the PDP 11 code that iOS was developed from way, way back. I um, don't oh, know. That would be an interesting, uh, we should have thought to ask. Um, um William, well, who was it? Bill Donald. Jaeger. Yeah, Will Jaeger about that, or Bill Jaeger about that when we had him on. He actually came on and talked about the PDP-11 code for the fuzzballs.
3: <laughs> so so looking back, what would you two do differently?
2: Oh, Given yeah. the requirements, I don't know there's anything that we could have done differently. Interesting. It, I mean, we met the requirements. It was backwards compatible. We added, you know, the interactive help. The command line editing was a, a nice bonus and it made the interface better, I think. Oh,
0: so what, yeah. do think? Absolutely. what do you think, Terry? Anything else that you would have done differently? Written it in Go oh. instead of C? No. Sorry. No. Go. <laughs>
3: written in ADA? No. Go didn't exist then.
0: I know, Go. but Ada did. You could have written it in Ada.
1: That'd be stupid. <laughs> it wouldn't have fit. Right. They settled <laughs> for your vote of support.
0: <laughs> Not for
3: Ada. Come on. <laughs>
1: It is no, there my there probably wasn't anything we could do any differently because using the C preprocessor allowed the code to be really, really small. Mm-hmm.
0: And that was a crucial point back then was yes. TFT, was uh, memory size, particularly.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the it was resulting code size. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, what was interesting is is when we would go pick a command. The, the reason we wound up with smaller code is because each command has its own parsing engine. So explain that. What do you mean? Okay. So hostname, you would have, it it would, (laughs) hostname had its own little parsing engine to pick out the, the name of the machine and to store it in memory.
0: Oh, so this so this is like a C function call when you yeah. pull when you pull host name. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the way it was when I left as well. Or that was yeah.
1: cool. so. It's basically this dispatch table. Okay, the command is host name. Go call this function. The ho- the command is X twenty five. Call this other function. Yeah, from there right. on, it was that function that parsed the rest of the command line.
0: So that's why it has to be backwards. For those who are listening and can't figure that that part out, the reason it's got to be backwards is is that you have to start processing in your preprocessor from the far right-hand side of the command and walk back. And then we get to the point where you actually know what the command is. You know what function to call. But the function right. call has to be the yeah. last thing in the chain that you pu- that you push through because you don't really have any way of holding the name of the function, you know, as you're doing all of this parser separation and pulling out the um, tokens off of the command line that you've typed in so you have to tokenize it pull everything in figure out what the valid tokens are at each point then when you get back to the initial command then you can actually call the correct function so it's 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 totally weird the way that it processes
1: but yeah. and, it, and it was Brent Bacala that came up with this idea on how to do this and at first we were like really this is making our heads itch <laughs> <laughs> it still does, <laughs> <laughs> it still does. <laughs> 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 right donald yeah
3: I've actually I, I, I hate to say this but the cli was my least favorite part of programming in classic ios by yeah. far it was hard you, know, I, you don't think about things in reverse backwards order you just don't right so yeah. so you have to and then if you're trying to insert something into the middle of a cli because you want to add a new yeah. sub thing you have to go start at the the back, you know, start at the top and work. Yeah, exactly.
1: You have to open it up in the middle and yep. <laughs> stick it in and, and, that. and surgically, and surgically append both of the ends to the, On both
2: sides. yeah, did. like a link list, but better.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it is yeah, a link list. Right. You're, you're creating the link list manually. Yeah. That's
1: right. Exactly.
2: Process but unfortunately we lost Brent had done a uh, proof of concept where he had a graphical interface where you could draw all the parser straights, uh, parser state transitions and then it would generate all of the macros for you but then we were like uh, i think what was it was it greg fowler who was a yeah, um, so. blind mm-hmm. developer and we we're like oh well we can't do that because greg wouldn't be able to do that and then i think somebody else heard about it later on is like well i would have wrote the commands for greg and <laughs> but by that time we had lost it
0: <laughs> you mean lost it like the code was disappeared
2: yeah, he did a proof of concept, and I don't know where he kept that code. And then by then, you know, he was, he had oh, left at some yeah. point, And wow. once it came up again, we didn't know where that code had gone. So it was gone.
1: <laughs>
0: Old days in coding. That's the way it used to work. Pre GitHub. This was all done in what? What was the name of it? Case, or what was the name of
2: that? We did everything in CVS.
0: Yeah, CVS. That's what. Oh,
2: my gosh. Cisco iOS at the time was still on RCS,
0: right? RCS,
2: and then it, they converted uh, iOS code over to CVS, and then like the first thing after they did that, we put the new parser in.
0: Yeah, yeah. When I first came to Cisco in '96, there was still a lot of angst over CVS um, and doing builds and still
3: of- it did. It, it, it was angst over CVS until the day it got decommissioned and people started using the ClearCase.
0: Yeah, ClearCase was what they replaced so- it yeah.
3: you know you didn't have angst. there was angst <laughs> uh,
2: yeah i wasn't a big fan of clear
0: clearcase it yeah. is definitely better <laughs> than by a long shot so that's good all right well i think that's about it then um so rob do you blog do you do anything no no okay
2: You write code. i write code, I, write code. <laughs> I fix things it's what i do
0: okay what about you terry you're out on network on uh every now and again right
1: I blog at Net Craftsman. I blog at No Jitter. I blog at Tech Target. Uh, I don't Twitter. Uh, I don't Facebook. Um, to me, those seem lot too much like CB radio that I grew up with, and <laughs> <laughs> the signal to noise ratio is yeah. about equal. <laughs> to see. What what about equal.
0: <laughs> no, there's much more noise than there is signal. <laughs> on those channels. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So Donald you're on Twitter right?
3: Yep, you can find me at me not your sharp on Twitter.
0: And you don't blog yet? I'm still working. I'm going to ask you every history of networking until you say yes. We're going to get you on to write one blog
1: post so that we can have people look at that one blog
3: post. That, that'd be weird. <laughs>
1: Yeah, Donald, that's, that's kind of like Tom Hollingsworth keeps um, saying that he's going to make me up a Twitter handle. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. You better be careful about that because people do. Bruce Schneier went through this with uh, LinkedIn. Somebody created a Bruce Schneier account and started spewing all sorts of garbage out there in his name. Mm-hmm. It was a real it was a real problem for him to get that fixed. Yeah. So, and I'm Russ White. You can find me at rule11.tech and you can find me at the network collective. And thanks for joining us for this interesting and really cool episode back into the bowels of networking history, where we, t- we get to talk about IDVs and SDPs and, hardware IDBs and stuff and holy mackerel that that all stuff is a really long time ago and stretching my memory cells so thanks for joining us and come back and find us later again on the Network Collective for more great history of networking content